Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Kim Mike Cutler. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 21st. First of all, I'd like to introduce my co-host this week, Kim Mai Cutler. Kim Mai is a partner at Initialized Capital, an early-stage venture firm. She's a former full-time journalist at TechCrunch as well. Kim Mai, thanks for co-hosting. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. On today's show, we're going to talk all about California, one of my absolute favorite topics. First, we're going to discuss California housing policy. A major legislative push that would have spurred more apartment construction in the state was just shelved until next year. Meanwhile, in the Bay Area, the homeless population is growing rapidly. In San Francisco, a recent federal street count tallied a 17 percent increase in homeless residents from 2017 to 2019. In Alameda County, where we are recording today in Oakland, California, the homeless population rose 43 percent. We are lucky to have Kim Mai with us to talk about our housing nightmare on today's show. And then we're talking about fire. We're joined by Faith Kearns of the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources and Lizzie Johnson, a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, who has done some really incredible work over the last two years documenting wildfires throughout the state of California. And she's currently working on a book about the aftermath of the campfire. And this was the deadliest fire in California history that destroyed the town of Paradise last year. We will learn about how fire victims are doing now and what preparations are being made for yet another fire season, which started early this month. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. So today's show is all about California, where I have only I've, I've only been here for six years. How long have you been in California, Kim? I've been in California for most of my life. I mean, I have lived outside okay. of the state, but I have a long, long history here. My grandfather first uh, came to the Bay Area in the 1950s. Oh, wow. His parents moved to Southern California and L.A. Um, just before the Great Depression. My mom was a Vietnamese war refugee who came here in the 1980s. So we've – you know, my family and its story has been through many different cycles within the state. We've seen many different things and um, in part because I'm third generation to, to Northern California, I have this kind of historical memory from my grandfather of what it was like to be here in the 60s and then from my mom about what it was like to be here as you know a female software engineer in the 80s and 90s. Oh my gosh. Um, so I have – yeah, I have a so lot of many historical chapters. memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so where, what part of California did you grow up in, in, in Northern California? I, yeah, I grew up in the South Bay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I've only been a resident here for, for six years and I've completely besotted by it and care so much about it. And, you know, one of the most troubling things is our housing crisis. California, just for context for people who are not here, is the most populated state in the country. We have the highest poverty rate and the highest number of billionaires. Uh, and a good number of some of the most profitable companies in the world are just south of us here uh, in the in the South Bay. But living in California is not always easy. There are dozens of wildfires a year that burn across the state. Those fires are moving close to where people live and are taking more lives. Uh, over 50,000 people were displaced following the campfire last year. I went up there and did some reporting, and we'll talk more about that shortly. Many of those folks moved to neighboring towns and took up rooms with friends and family. Others now live in their cars or in tents on the land where their homes once stood. 
And if the threat of encroaching fires isn't bad enough, the state's sprawling urban areas don't have enough affordable housing either. And this is a particular problem in the Bay Area. Uh, Meanwhile, people with a lot of money who work in the tech industry have signed on to leases that are just incredibly expensive uh, when it comes to monthly rent. And people who don't make six figures a year just can't afford the same rents. Um, Kim, I want to start by kind of giving a broad diagnosis or or kind of sketch of uh, why we're in a housing crisis now. You know, why don't developers build more affordable housing? You know, every time I talk to my families about this, they're like, well, just build more housing and then require it to be cheaper. Like, why why is it not so simple? Um, Well, if you actually look at the economics of building a unit in Mm -hmm. San Francisco, given the land costs and the construction costs, you actually cannot make the numbers work. Like it just doesn't make it sense. Actually, it actually does not make sense. So like you think about the numbers at, um, you know, a land cost at 150, 200K per unit. You think about construction costs at now, you know, San Francisco is the most expensive construction market in the entire country. So we're talking about 400 to $600 a square foot. Oh, wow. Um, and then you talk about fees and many cities around the Bay Area charge fees of like seventy-five dollars to $150,000 per unit. Then there's the cost of capital and financing it. And so you have to actually take out different sets of loans. You also do keep in mind like developers do, you know, the, the capital that flows into real estate developers, it can come from, you know, a variety of sources. It can come from also public pension funds as well, who mm-hmm. also expect a return so that they can make returns for their retirees. And so you kind of add all those things up together. And, you know, you know the numbers that I last checked, which are actually a little bit dated from a year or two ago, you know, it has stuff you're looking at a 750K cost. For um, like an apart, like for Just to, to 750 to 900 mm-hmm. base. I mean, that excludes like marketing and all, all sorts of other stuff. And so if you want to make a unit that is affordable to like a middle income household, you, you know, you can't do that given the land and construction costs absent some type of public taxpayer subsidy. And when you think about that taxpayer subsidy, you know, it, it, it is large relative to other existing public programs that we would have. Like if you think about what SF needs to do to build one affordable unit of housing um, from a bond on top of state and federal programs, that would require like 300K in local San Francisco generated subsidy, $300,000 per unit. And you think that about that relative to what it costs to say send um, a, a kid to a K through 12 school for a year, which is maybe like more like 11,000 or, you know, what the state of California pays to send a student to the University of California system, which might be twelve to 16,000, 300K relative to those other programs is orders of magnitude larger. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just a really phenomenal scale. Um, that said, you could obviously characterize it in different ways rather than looking at it as a service program. You could think of affordable housing as infrastructure, like the way you might spend on roads or a bridge. But, you know, without going on too much more, it's like it is a large amount of money. Like San Francisco will have a $500 million affordable housing bond on the ballot in November. And at that rate that I just told you, I mean, maybe that's like 2,000 units. And these are new units we're talking about being yeah. so expensive. Right? So like that would create two th- you know, roughly 2,000 affordable, affordable housing uni- yeah. units. And the city grows at 10,000 people a year. So – you know, like you can see the difference in scale. It's just impossible, it seems it, like. It's not – It's I would never characterize no. anything as impossible. But I think that in the dialogue, people do not understand the sheer scale of cost. It's interesting that you say, uh, you know, thinking about uh, affordable housing as a civic infrastructure or or kind of not as uh, a, a private investment that an individual would, would – Yeah. I mean into. that's definitely one way of – I mean if you wanted to reframe it from a long-term perspective mm-hmm. – 
this is infrastructure. This basically, you know, this unit will last 100 years. Many people will cycle through it. You know, it's a way to, in perpetuity, ensure that, like, there are people of this particular income level in the city. Right. And so what's going on with the policies now? Because there are actual, like, political barriers to building more, even if we did think about it uh, in terms of civic infrastructure or in terms of kind of something that, that will live with the city for a long time. Yeah. So in aggregate, if you look at California, you know, there are 500,000 Californians born a year, right? Mm-hmm. And historically through the last decade, the state of California has produced like 80,000 housing units a year. Um, and that over the course of many years and decades has led to a cumulative shortage of roughly like 3.5 million units, which is enormous and phenomenal. And you need to attack this with a combination of approaches. You need to have strong tenant protections to keep people in their units because it's just much more expensive um, if they're evicted and then you have to rehouse them or Mm -hmm. provide services and that kind of stuff. Um, And then you also need to produce a lot of units to keep up with population growth. And for the reasons that I kind of said before in that conversation about expenses, like you're definitely going to need taxpayer subsidy to produce housing at the working class end of the market in high land value areas or expensive land value areas like the inner Bay Area. At the same time, there's a very limited number of subsidies, right? Um, You know, if we're only doing a $500 million bond every like five years and it only does 2,000 units, it's not really going to cover all of the population growth of the city. And so you will have to rely on you know, market rate development to produce housing for the rest of, uh, you know, your income segments. And I mean, one thing to really emphasize here is that when we do subsidize low-income housing because of the way that federal and state programs are designed, they, whenever we rely on those sources of financing, that tilts the housing more towards the extremely low-income and low-income end, like less than 60% of area median income. And from a city perspective, it's actually more expensive at a local level to provide middle-income housing because there aren't state and federal programs that exist to support that. And so there was a policy proposal on the table, SB 50, yeah. that would have spurred more market rate production and, right? and, and, affordable. and affordable. Okay, Right. So yeah. it was like it was kind of a, a very large policy proposal. There were a lot of different prongs to it that was just shelved. But it basically would have provided or it would have allowed for the building of more housing. Right? Yeah. Basically, what it would have done is if you are in a transit rich area mm-hmm. that is serviced by rail or, you know, a high throughput type of transit mode or you're in a, a hugely jobs-rich area like parts of the peninsula or South Bay that have, you know, approved large corporate campuses um, but only have, a you know, permitted one housing unit for every 15 jobs. Um, if you wanted to build a project in that area, you would be allowed to go up to 45 feet within a quarter, half mile of transit stations and um, get a waiver from certain parking minimum requirements. And then part of that production, a percentage of that production would also have to be affordable or inclusionary. But basically, yeah. like, it wouldn't override local, you know, ordinances. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a city with a higher percentage, then that would stay in place. But if you didn't have one at all, this would basically be an imposition of a totally new inclusionary, you know, affordability requirement, which a lot of, frankly, a lot of, like, the wealthier suburbs they don't have. They don't. There's no affordability requirements. Yeah. In, in many of these yeah. areas, right? Yeah. 
And so uh, it seems like this definitely wouldn't be a curative for the entire housing crisis, but it would have helped a lot, right, in terms of yeah, it spurring development, it especially tall development. Potentially enable. It's not, I mean, 45 feet isn't really, like, we're yeah. in downtown Oakland. Okay. It's really not that tall yeah, here. Right. But, you know, this would have unlocked potential for millions of, of, of units. Okay. So UC Berkeley's anti-displacement or displacement project studied and found that it would um, it would basically, in affected areas, it would quadruple market rate production capacity and then quintuple inclusionary on-site capacity. So the capacity for on-site uh, affordable units. And it was shelved. Uh, a representative from a mostly suburban area um, decided to, to Yeah. To so it, I right? wouldn't say the bill is dead for this year even, but oh. like – um, so it basically had passed two committees prior to that with um, almost unanimous votes. Mm-hmm. And and then so this senator from an affluent district in Southern California, which has, you know, he's from La Cunha, uh, Flint Ridge, which has more of a median home price of $1.7 million, which is actually more expensive than San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, he just, you know, decided not to move the bill forward from appropriations. And you know that's kind of a covert anti-democratic thing to do because, like, if the if people do or don't want the bill, it should go to a vote, right? Like, mm-hmm. and there should be a vote on the floor where people can see, you know, where different senators stand, rather than having one person unilaterally do it. And I, the other piece of context I will add is that Senator Portantino's solution to California's housing crisis was to do a vanity right, license, license plate, plate right, yeah. to raise money that way, right? Yeah. I, I was just reading in the L.A. Times, uh, readers who, who have been writing the L.A. Times was, were saying that they were glad that it was uh, killed. Uh, the majority of their response from readers was that they, they wanted to see it go away. So is this a Southern California perspective compared to Northern no, California? No, I think it's actually a generational perspective. Okay. I mean, like, obviously— the people who would write a newspaper. Folks yeah. who would write a newspaper letters to editor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are going to have slightly different demographics than— yeah. um, But but anyway, I would say it's a generational thing. I mean, you have folks who— got in like a generation ago when housing in the barrier was only like four times the median income rather than 10 to 11 times mm-hmm. the median income. And then they also get to keep the same tax basis from however many decades ago they bought their houses. And so their houses might be like fully paid off or close to it. And they also are paying a fraction of the property taxes that newer people who moved to the barrier right. are paying or the younger generation is paying. And they kind of like things the way they are, but, you know, they don't sort of realize that that is basically quite literally mortgaging the future of the state. Like young people cannot afford these rents. They cannot, you know, like afford these houses. And we're not even talking that young. We're talking people in their 30s, people in their early 40s, people who who might have families. Uh, There's just not sustainability here right now. Yeah. And and you can see it in the growth rate of the population. Mm -hmm. It's basically like birth rates fell to a historical low this year. People and so are just like, not hopeful about starting families. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you don't have the housing security, mm-hmm. if you don't have housing security for yourself, how are you going to have children or support a larger family? Like, you're just not It's hard to save money when you're paying, like, increasingly high rent. Yeah. And then I, I, I want to um, talk about our, our big homeless problem here. So yeah. on top of all of these issues, one of the things that comes from that is that people don't have housing. And when people right. don't have housing, they don't necessarily move from where they call home. They, they move to the streets. Yeah. So... How is how is homelessness being grappled with throughout the Bay Area? I mean, that's something that's that's increasing every year as well as, as sure. You so, I mean, I think the broader historical context I would give here is um, I, I like to think of homelessness as like a thirty-seven year problem. I've gone through mm-hmm. like the San Francisco Chronicle archives. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing to go back and like read the Chronicle from nineteen eighty-two, where Diane Feinstein, who's now senator, says right. like. 
um, I will get this problem solved by Christmas, mm-hmm. which is a reflection of how novel the issue is at the time. She said that when we, I was in elementary school, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and we haven't done it over the last almost 40 years. And then the numbers from last week are – I mean, they're really they're really upsetting, right? So, so they might not even be like they might be undercounting too because it's a federal count. Yeah, I mean yeah. the count is com- is, is complicated. complicated. Yeah. Um, but I mean, for context, like the way that the homelessness count works, it's a federally mandated count. Every once every other year, you know, cities get a whole troop of volunteers to go out and do a visual count mm-hmm. of people experiencing homelessness on the streets. They kind of assign people to go out street by street, yeah. um, marking down what you know what they see. And then that uh, comes back and becomes the basis of uh, information data funding for cities um, around around this issue. And um, but anyways, the context is last week numbers came out again. Uh, San Francisco was up seventeen percent. Uh, it's now over eight thousand people, which is the highest it's ever it's the highest it's been in like fifteen years, basically. And then. Alameda County, again, had a terrible set of numbers, um, up 43 percent, which um, from 2015 to 2017, there was also a comparable increase. And so you have like two back-to-back increases of 20 to 40 percent plus over the course of four years. And you can see it just visibly across Alameda County. Well, um, Kim, I thank you so much for letting me ask you a cascade of questions about housing in the Bay Area and across California. When we come back, we'll talk about the beginning of wildfire season here across the state. Joining us will be Faith Kearns from the California Institute for Water Resources and the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. We'll also be joined by Lizzie Johnson, a fantastic reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle, who is a wildfire reporter. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. We're back, and for today's interview segment, we're talking about wildfires in California. It's now clear that the utility company Pacific Gas and Electric was responsible for the blaze known as the Camp Fire, which killed 85 people last November and left the town of Paradise and other neighboring hamlets in ruins. Sparks from 100-year-old PG&E transmission lines caused the fire, and the utility filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. Joining us to talk about all this is Faith Kearns, who coordinates research and outreach programs with the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Also on the line is Lizzie Johnson, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, who's writing a book about the campfire now. Faith Kearns and Lizzie Johnson, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Great. So, Lizzie, I actually want to start with you. Maybe you can kind of give us a sense of how things are going in Butte County where the campfire hit now. You know, have most victims found provisional housing? Are you noticing a strong FEMA presence there? Yeah. So these things take time. And even though it's been more than six months since the campfire hit last November, a lot of people are still trying to find places to live. 
Um, we have a bunch of FEMA housing that's going up in Butte County. Like they have new trailers in Lake Orville in that area that went up recently. And um, people are also trying to figure out what to do long-term. Um, now that they're starting to figure out where to live in the meantime, there's like 40 or so people that have applied for permits to rebuild in Paradise. And eight of those permits have been issued so far. Um, and Chico remains pretty stressed in terms of rent pricing for apartments and homes and the cost of homes to just buy them has skyrocketed as well. So you're seeing a lot of different impacts for both short and long-term housing. I'm kind of curious, you know, you've been reporting on this issue for, what, is it two or three years now? Two years, yeah. And how are you seeing fire departments and uh, responders learn from each other? What are they changing in terms of their tactics and strategies in terms of how they answer to this new scale of wildfire in California? I feel like this last fire season in 2018 was a real eye-opener because in 2017, we had the Wine Country wildfires, which were the deadliest and most destructive fires up until that point. And they were really quickly followed by the Ferguson fire down in Southern California, which was the largest fire that we had ever seen as a state. And I think at that point, a lot of people had assumed that this is as bad as it was going to get for a while. And then 2018 was just as unrelenting. We had the car fire up near Redding that spawned a fire tornado. And then the campfire, which was, you know, as we know, now the most destructive wildfire and killed 85 people, followed by the Mendocino Complex, which topped the Southern California wildfire as the largest. And I think there was a real, it was a real eye-opener in terms of people realizing that it wasn't it wasn't just enough to try and put the fires out, that there needed to be more preventative work done in terms of fuels management to prevent these wildfires from getting so out of hand. The money was going to be spent either way, whether it was in the beginning or at the end when they were trying to put these fires out. So you've been seeing more fire conferences happening with different agencies trying to put their brains together and figure out how we can prevent this from happening in the future and what what the answers are. Because with climate change happening, we're entering a really unprecedented era of how these wildfires are acting. So it is very hard to think about, like, you know, what 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 do we do? Because, you know, it is climate change as part of it. Also, you know, PG&E is, uh, has, has something to do with this, no doubt. And they're doing a ton of fire management out there. And, you know, people are still getting bills from PG&E. PG&E also hires a ton of people out there. I feel like every third person I talk to works for PG&E in the area. Uh, there's a dependency on the company. But I don't even know how we begin to talk about fault when it comes to something so unmanageable. And, and Faith, I thought you might have a, a sense of how we can even wrap our heads around responsibility here. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that responsibility is the most fruitful question in a certain mm-hmm. way, just because, you know, even when you look at, you know, PG&E, it's sure it's a company and it has a specific sort of management and set of mandates, but at the same time, they're our energy provider, right? And we all want that energy and depend on that energy. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I know there's lots of work going on sort of in the energy sector about how that that part of things could be handled differently with like these community co-ops and different things like that. But at the end of the day, kind of this is all of our all of our problem. Um, and it has so many different facets to it that I just feel like fault and blame aren't 
necessarily going to get us, you know, where we might want to be in the future. So is there is there a policy prong to this? Is there something that that we need to be asking our elected officials to be doing? Sure. I mean, I I think there are multiple. Um, For me, as somebody who's been working on wildfire for the past, you know, 15 plus years um, in this state, I would say um, I get a little demoralized, (laughs) particularly after the the past few years, as Lizzie described, where there's just been this kind of um, up in the ante, although many people would say, you know, looking back to the witch fire, for example, in San Diego and in 2007, I think it was, Um, you know, there have been precursors to the current fires that we're seeing. It's not like this is a completely brand new problem. But I do think, um, for me personally, a a big part of it does have to do with housing and kind of where where we're situating houses, um, how they're built. You know, I think we're, we're headed more toward what I think of as a housing and sort of urban fire problem than a wildland fire problem. And I feel like, you know, while clearly we need to be doing work in the wildlands, um, it's it's not it's not going to be even remotely enough to deal with the particular kind of fire problem that we have in California. So, um, yeah. What do you mean by an, a housing and urban fire problem? Are you just ta- are you talking about like Malibu or are you talking about the Oakland Hills fire or is there no. something else you're referring to? So I would say that for me, when I look at the parrot at the campfire, for example, um, even though, you know, it did sort of start in the wildlands, that was a house to house urban conflagration fire at the end of the day. Um, you know, houses were catching each other on fire. And since you guys have been up there, you've seen, you know, there's a lot of vegetation still standing while houses are burned down to the foundation, right? So that I view as kind of a house to house urban conflagration fire, not particularly a wildland um, fire like we used to think of. Um, So, you know, that becomes a different kind of fire. This is an important point to kind of emphasize with the listeners is that California's vegetation is evolved to burn or evolved to withstand fire. I mean, you know, um, yes, that's definitely true. Um, And we have kind of you know, two, but actually many more types of vegetation. So, you know, talking about fire in Southern California is is quite different in a lot of ways than talking about fire in the Sierra, for example, where you actually have more of a traditional forest, whereas you have much more chaparral and shrub kind of stuff going on in Southern California. And so, you know, the types of vegetation treatment that are possible and all of that are are different in those places. Um, and so, you know, you look at the Tubbs fire, for example, that was largely an oak kind of grassland fire. Um, and so the, the kind of fuel treatments that you're seeing outside of the campfire perimeter are, you know, more aimed at what might happen in a forest, but that wouldn't really work around Santa Rosa, for example. Um, and so, you know, and in, and in all of these cases, particularly, again, in Paradise, what you really saw was like once the fire got into the town of Paradise, it was a it was house to house fire. And so that really becomes more of an urban planning, urban zoning kind of public health issue. And, you know, it's an urban planning, urban zoning issue, but it's just the the speed at which this fire spread is uh, is just hard to, to wrap our heads around, too. And Lizzie, maybe you could speak to this, but but my understanding is that it was, you know, acres a second, right? It was, yeah. And under the conditions that it started as well, there was no way firefighters could have caught that unless it was very, very early. You had those really strong winds that were coming in down over the Sierra Nevadas and just stoking that fire, carrying it straight into the heart of paradise. And like Faith mentioned, at that point, that's when the houses started catching fire. Can you talk a little bit about 
you know, what are the costs of uh, vegetation management? I mean, Liz, you were talking a little bit earlier about kind of you're going to spend the money anyways. You're going to spend it before or you're going to spend it after. What does it cost uh, a community like Paradise or like, a, you know, any other Northern California community to shore itself up for the season? Yeah. And Faith, please feel free to interject if I'm missing anything. <laughs> sure. um, but, you know, it the fuels management for these communities, it's built off of decades of people really protecting the forests and not doing as much proactive management as what could have been done. And so now you have these forests that are very overstocked. You have the results of the drought where there is a lot of dead brush. There's dead trees that have been killed by bark beetle and things like that. So it's not as easy as it seems to just go in and thin and light fires to clear out some of that. You also have to remember that there's rules in the state that prohibit when you can do it in terms of air quality and um, what the saturation in plants are in terms of how flammable things are. So these communities are, are trying, but there are a lot of rules to cut through. It's also just a matter of finding the money. You know, the emergency money that is there to put out a fire is much greater than what there is to proactively try to prevent one. Do you have like a kind of a figure or a budgeting? Because co- like, when I have you know, talk to folks about it in, in the East Bay, at least it's like six to $10,000 to remove a mature tree by a power line and um, to underground lines, it's like three to $5 million a mile. I mean, these are really expensive infrastructure costs that most people aren't aware of. Yeah. So mechanical thinning, which is just going in and dragging out brush and things of that nature can be around 14 to $1,500 an acre. Prescribed burning is more around $150 an acre. And that's much cheaper than coming in and trying to put out a fire. If you look at the really big fires, which can cost upwards of 30, 40, 50 million dollars for something as much as 15,000 acres, which is what we saw with the Pawnee fire last year, that amounts to around $2,300 an acre. So you can see the difference there where um, being more proactive about it is at least half the cost. You know, the other thing that I've heard about that is that $1, you know, there's this common disaster um, figure that people use, which is like $1 of prevention, you know, prevents you from sending $6 in sort of um, response dollars. So that's sort of a generally understood thing. You know, I'm, I'm curious now to move the conversation into, you know, other types of infrastructure that we might be thinking about. Because I know for a lot of people who are not in California or haven't been to these areas, you know, they think, well, why why are we running lines through trees? Like, why not go underground? Why not use solar? Is this a time when we should start thinking about different infrastructural solutions uh, as we're doing this fire management as well? Yeah. I mean, it's not – it's so simple to come in and just right. say, you know, if you underground all of the power lines, that would prevent fires from sparking. It would definitely help, but there And you are... can't underground all the power lines. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely not. And part of the issue, too, is it's so nuanced. Like, there are people that are moving so deep out into the wild and urban interface because they've been forced out of cities where they can't afford it or they want to live somewhere that's more beautiful where they don't get stuck in traffic going to work every day. And so pg e has to provide power to those people. And so you have these lines that are sneaking through really, really... severe landscape, kind of like what you see in Concow, which is one of the communities that was hit 
really hard by the campfire. Um, they had even less time to evacuate than Paradise did. And uh, even today, if you walk down into Goncao, you still see pg e stringing these lines right back up through these strands of trees that have black all around their bases. And the power lines are still very close to it's them. It's just one road there, too. Yeah. So these are very difficult areas. Yeah. And it, it costs so much more money to underground the lines than it does to restring them back in the air. And in the meantime, you have people waiting for power and they need power. I'm, I'm curious from Faith, um, I mean, since you've been working on this issue for 15 years, um, from a public education and communication standpoint, what language is effective with voters and what language and messages aren't effective with voters in explaining the scale and urgency of, of this issue? Yeah, that's kind of the million dollar question. I mean, I guess, you know, for me at this point, I I, I have no idea um, <laughs> because nothing that we've done so far has actually worked. And so, you know, there is a certain way where, you know, the devastation that I think happens in a particular town and to homeowners is terrible, right? And I can't even imagine it because I haven't had to deal with it yet. Um, and I do say yet because I I'm sure that it will happen. Um, and, and, but there's a, the other side of that is being somebody who watches year after year after year, these kinds of things hit different communities across the state with just the, the scale of what needs to happen is really not even being discussed. Um, you know, so I think it's. When you say the response is inadequate, what, like, I'm not sure, I, I don't expect you to know every single answer, but if mm-hmm. you know that the current response is inadequate, what is closer to adequate. What would, yeah, what would be good? Like federal? Like what What, what do we need? <laughs> yeah, for me, I think, you know, we really need to see, start treating the wildfire problem like a public health problem um, as something that happens to a huge number of Californians year after year that has, you know, tr- of mental health effects, um, that has, you know, implications for smoke, for water, for housing. You know, this is a huge public health problem that we should treat as such. Um, we should start thinking much more strongly about evacuation, um, particularly for vulnerable populations and things like the potential for even sheltering in place or what's known as stay and defend. Like, what are the alternatives if you can't get out of a place? How do we take seriously the fact that some people may need to actually stay in that place as a fire moves through? What would that take? You know, um, these are really, really big questions. And I think that, you know, we need we need to treat them that way. To add to what Faith has said, I've I've talked with a lot of firefighters who have even mentioned that a really easy, reasonable answer might be to train people how to use fire shelters and just have those hanging in the garage next to their yard tools as a last resort. That way, if they can't get out and the community doesn't have an adequate evacuation plan, at least they have a way to shelter in place and have a chance at saving their life. What's a fire shelter? How's it built? How's it constructed? So a fire shelter, it it kind of looks like a, a sleeping bag. It's made out of this foil and you crawl into it. Um, It's used as a last resort for firefighters, and it preserves this pocket of breathable air and reflects radiant heat. It is not the end-all, be-all. There are many, many firefighters that have died in attempts to use them, but it's better than nothing. Uh, 2019 season. um, What are folks working in climate science, fire science, et cetera, saying about this season? How will it look compared to last season and any kind of last things that you suggest to, to get ready? And also, when does it start and when does it end? I don't think people are always conscious about like when it when fire season starts and ends. 
Well, I know that they've already declared fire season has started in paradise. Um, you know, I think in general, right around now um, is when fire season starts. Obviously, it gets sort of worse and worse um, toward fall when we start getting more Santa Ana winds and when vegetation is super dried out. Um, and it'll be really interesting this year to see what happens just because, you know, we had this prolific rainy season. And so you have all this vegetation um, that can grow. And then we've had this interesting sort of very late season prolific rain um, and I, you know, for me, it's unclear whether, for example, if people have already done some vegetation treatments, they'll need to do them again because there'll be another crop of particularly grasses this year. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're always going to be in a situation where our background temperatures are rising um, because of climate change. And so that's always an issue for, you know, drying vegetation and things like that. Um, I always just look look at it with bated breath a little bit to see what, what's going to happen in any given year. Faith Kurds and Lizzie Johnson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. So to keep the California theme of this episode going, uh, for tabs this week, we're going to talk about a story that's not like one particular story or link that you should definitely read, but rather a news item that might have come across your feeds. And that is that the city of San Francisco earlier this month became the first U.S. city to ban police from using facial recognition technology. Now, that ban uh, was voted on by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And uh, basically, face surveillance is prohibited, but other types of surveillance technologies like automated license plate readers and predictive policing software and cell phone surveillance towers uh, can only be adopted by city agencies following a public notice process, as well as uh, clear policies that are provided for how that surveillance tech will be used by city government. So... The ban on face recognition is just super interesting because it's something that we're seeing at least, you know, federally and and across the U.S. actually pop up, you know, when entry and exit into the United States, uh, when you're flying internationally, you get your face scanned. Um, Have you have you been through one of those before, Kim? I don't think I have. Not that I can recall. I did. It's like a weird machine you stand in front of and it takes kind of a black and white picture of your face and you don't know what it's doing. And then all of a sudden it says you're fine. And it's very, very futuristic. And I don't know what where my picture of that is going through. But we do know that the FBI does have a database with, I think, I, well, I know over 400 million faces in it. Um, still not as big as Facebook's uh, name to face database. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is uh, it, it's it's cutting edge. It's it's definitely um, we've seen the Bay Area in other ways uh, push back against the use of surveillance technology by city government in Oakland. Uh, if the government wants to adopt surveillance technologies, that has to be um, for, what is it has to be approved first by. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, this this piece of legislation is more encompassing than the way it was reported as a facial recognition ban. It's also, you know. Um, different departments acquiring or entering in agreements um, to use any type of surveillance technology have to um, provide reports and more transparency right. into around how it's used. Right. And so in Oakland, there's already a public approval process yeah. for new surveillance technology. 
Uh, but a ban is going to be debated as well, I think, later this month. So, um, so perhaps it'll spread across the Bay Area. One thing that I would kind of distinguish between the way that, you know, there are two really dominant tech hubs in the world and that, mm-hmm. you know, tech poles or whatever you want to call it, ecosystems, and that's the American one and the Chinese one, mm-hmm. right? And you can see investors and private companies behaving totally differently based on the cultural norms that are established in these different ecosystems. So, like, obviously, if you go into the Chinese system, there's very few proclivities or hesitations about using surveillance technology, and companies are able to raise literally, like, hundreds of millions of dollars yeah, around facial recognition. Data collection is not a concern. Yeah, around facial recognition. And... In the United States, um, there are more hesitations about it. But ultimately, like, you know, this is an area where being someone who works in in, in venture capital and being someone who sees pitches, Mm -hmm. like, I individually don't want to be in a decision where I'm unilaterally – like, I may see, like, a facial recognition company might pitch us. And I may individually not feel comfortable moving forward with that or I may not, you know, there might be a lot of questions that I have around that. But like we're only one firm out of I don't even know how many different firms, right? And so, you know, just because we debated internally doesn't mean every other firm, you know, won't move forward with that. And so in certain ways, it's actually good to have a democratically elected body say Mm -hmm. like here are the cultural norms that we expect around how these companies behave, right? Right. And so, you know, you can actually feel the impact of, you know, a news story like this affect the way that companies pitch us. Like, companies that pitch us going forward are going to be like, oh, and by the way, we're not going to do... They're going to preemptively... Yeah, they're going to preemptively just not do facial... Because they're going to assume that there's no departmental... You know, there will be problems around demand for it, right? And so, like, like, let's assume you get a smart camera company pitch and they don't do facial recognition at all. But what if one of their competitors finds a market niche there and their company blows up? Like right. every other company in the space is going to feel pressure to do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, So this is kind of why it's probably a positive that, again, a democratically elected public body says, um, you know, we don't want our police departments um, becoming right. consumers or customers of this type of tech. As somebody who's worked uh, on legislation against, uh, you know, government surveillance as well as uh, kind of advocacy around corporate surveillance and, and limiting that, to me, this is a very, very good thing. You know, it, it, it I definitely see it as uh, people saying that this is something they do not want in their communities and then working with the government and, and with advocacy groups to, to then – limit the use of that in their communities. And and there's a lot of reasons why people, you know, don't want it. You know, the databases that are traditionally fed to facial recognition systems uh, in order to match, you know, photos to someone's identity are often linked with mugshot databases. And so they're going to pull more, you know, positive responses or, or have more matches uh, for people that show up more regularly in a mugshot database. And so this is something that a lot of people who are opposed to this technology say uh, is a way to kind of perpetuate uh, systemic racism that already exists in policing. Um, There's also a complaint that facial recognition software is not 
very accurate. Um, and so when police use it and they approach people based on a match from their facial recognition software, uh, it's particularly not accurate with uh, folks who have darker skin tones. So uh, that could lead to questioning somebody who um, who has been mismatched by this software. And uh, so beyond the fact that, you know, it's, it's often matching people from mugshot databases, uh, it just doesn't work that well, you know, on top of that. And so the advocacy organizations in San Francisco, like the ACLU of Northern California, Media Alliance, and and I think a, you know over a dozen other groups have come together and and fought against this uh, based on civil liberties grounds and, and social justice grounds and and won. So we'll see if this is going to spread uh, to other cities. All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and Kim Mai on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Kim Mai is at Kim Mai Cutler. Thanks again to our guests, Faith Kearns and Lizzie Johnson. You can follow Faith on Twitter at FR Kearns, and you can follow Lizzie at Lizzie Johnson, that's Johnson with three N's, on Twitter as well. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer this week is Cameron Drews. Thanks to Gonady Joe Johnson, who engineered for us today at YR Media in Oakland. And that'll do it. We'll see y'all next week. Thank you so much, Kim Mai. Thank you.